In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu with choice cuts of our favourite stories from a week of print and podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and on today's menu, why Catholics are flooding to the Arabian Peninsula. Our Bartleby columnist revels in the sweet joy of missing out. And the truth behind the legend of sharpshooter Wild Bill Hickok. But we start with our cover, and our headline was The Battle for Venezuela. Hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans protested this week against President Nicolas Maduro's authoritarian rule. They marched in support of Juan Guaido, head of the National Assembly, who recently proclaimed himself interim president. And the countries of the world are also choosing sides. Mr Guaido has won the backing of most of Latin America, as well as the United States and Europe. But Mr Maduro is supported by Russia, China and Turkey. As world leaders pile in for Mr Maduro or against him, they are battling over an important idea which has lately fallen out of favour. That when a leader pillages his state, oppresses his people and subverts the rule of law, it is everybody's business. The scale of the crisis in Venezuela is hard to comprehend. In the past five years, GDP has fallen by half. Annual inflation is reckoned to be 1.7 million percent. The government no longer publishes the numbers, which means that Bolivar savings worth $10,000 at the start of the year dwindled to 59 cents by the end. People are malnourished and lack simple medicines, including antibiotics. Our cover leader argued that the question is not whether the world should help Mr Guaido, but how. This week, the United States, still Venezuela's main trading partner, imposed what amounts to sanctions on oil exports and on imports of the diluents needed to market its heavy oil. One danger is that Mr Maduro digs in and orders the security forces and the colectivos, organised thugs at the regime service, to impose terror. Another is that the United States overplays its hand. It could come to be seen once again in Latin America as imperialist and overbearing. But the crucial thing we warned is to remember that a change of leadership is just the beginning. The lesson from the Arab Spring is that even a leader who starts by sweeping away a tyrant must bring improvements rapidly or risk losing support. The immediate priorities will be food and health care. The very fact of a new government will help stop hyperinflation. But Venezuela will also need real money from abroad. International lenders, including the IMF, should be generous. The to-do list is long, but first, it must get rid of Mr Maduro. In the meantime, you may well wonder how ordinary Venezuelans get by from day to day. 90% of them live below the poverty line. With shortages of almost everything, the average Venezuelan lost 11 kilograms in 2017. In our new daily current affairs show, The Intelligence, our reporter in Caracas, Stephen Gibbs, gave us a snapshot of everyday life lived on the brink. We went to Patari, one of the biggest slums in the whole of Latin America. Almost everyone we spoke to just sort of desperately trying to understand how they would be able to survive this month on the minimum salary. And, for example, Berta Meza, a pensioner, 59. 
She survives by government handouts. There's a government food handout system called the CLAP system that most people say is enough to survive on for perhaps 10 days. Others sell some of the things that they might receive in that government food pack and buy something else that they want. That was Stephen Gibbs reporting from Venezuela for The Intelligence, the new daily global current affairs podcast we're bringing to you from The Economist. Many everyday household goods are also in short supply in Cuba, but thanks to government subsidies, one item is usually both cheap and plentiful, and that's condoms. Necessity being the mother of invention, over time, Cubans have come up with some ingenious uses for them, apart from the obvious. Our correspondent Roseanne Lake mustered the courage to go and ask some of her neighbours what else they do with a French letter. I went to a pharmacy uh, and started chatting to some of the ladies there and asked, (laughs) what are the things that people use condoms for other than the obvious? And they said, hair tying, that's one thing. But they also use them to fix pipes. They, you know, put them over the places where a leak may have sprung. And I'm told they're actually very effective, which is a testament to the quality of the condoms in Cuba. Um, Butchers have a very curious use for them. They fill them with water and they use them as slide traps. Another of my favorite uses for them is taxi drivers who use the lubricant in condoms to polish the bonnets of those 50s cars that they're so proud of. Every day, the intelligence brings you a unique perspective on the stories shaping your world from the Economist's global network of correspondents. Last week, Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, reported from Zhengzhou. This inland megacity is one of China's technology hubs. It's home to Foxconn, Apple's biggest manufacturer. Their complex there is known as iPhone City, and at its peak it employed some 350,000 people. But China's economy is now slowing, and whole streets of iPhone City stand shuttered. One of the workers that I spoke to said that he'd been at the factory for six years, which made him a real veteran of the assembly line work. And he would have happily continued doing so, but um, he was being pushed down to uh, just eight hours a day, five days a week, which might sound like a normal work week to many of our listeners, but for somebody who's working at a Foxconn factory, that's really a pittance. It's about 20 hours less than what he would like to be needing to be able to achieve his uh, salary target. Um, So he was thinking about walking away from the job and said that a lot of his colleagues had already done so iPhone City's fortunes may rest on the outcome of America and China's trade deal due by March the 1st. Follow the story by subscribing to The Intelligence from Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And while you're with us, do leave us a review. We'd love to know more of what you enjoyed and what you'd like to hear more of. Back to this week's paper now and an unusual call to prayer in Abu Dhabi. On Tuesday, for the first time, the Pope will hold Mass on the Arabian Peninsula, so Christian pilgrims are flocking to the birthplace of Islam. More than 100,000 are preparing to pack the Zayed Stadium, adorned with a big cross, to celebrate the Eucharist with Pope Francis. Hotels are full of pilgrims chanting hosannas. 
Some hold standards bearing the Christian dove of peace, tweaked with wings the colours of the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, flag. The Pope is a symbol of peace, tolerance and the promotion of brotherhood, says Mohammed bin Zayed, the Crown Prince, de facto ruler and papal host. Prince Mohammed has turned Abu Dhabi into a rare oasis of interfaith dialogue in the Middle East. Under his tenure, the UAE has offered fleeing Arab Christians a haven. It has a new cathedral, 16 new churches and some 700 congregations. Remarkably, in 2013, the UAE ranked third among countries with the fastest-growing Christian populations. But some observers are asking why the Pope is honouring a ruler who denies political freedoms at home and meddles in civil wars abroad. For almost four years, he and Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, have bombed and besieged Yemen after its government was pushed out by Houthi rebels. It's a horrible state, and the Pope's visit lends credibility to that government, says Khaled Abu El-Fadl of the University of California in Los Angeles. I'm worried about the moral message he's sending. Over in our business section, our Bartleby columnist has embraced a new creed, the absolute and unadulterated joy of missing out. Perhaps they are two of the most welcome words in the English language. Meeting cancelled. Workers, and possibly all people, can be divided into two groups. Those who like to be involved in everything and can be dubbed FOMOs because they suffer from a fear of missing out. And then there are those who would ideally want to be left to get on with their own particular work without distraction. The JOMOs, joy of missing out. One test of which tribe a person belongs to is how quickly they adopt to new technologies. FOMOs relish the chance to take part in a video conference call so that they can share fully in the dynamics of the meeting and not miss any clues about the participants' long-term agenda. JOMOs deeply resent the video element, which prevents them from checking their emails or playing solitaire while Ted drones on about budgets for 20 minutes. But according to Bartleby, it takes all sorts to make an office. After all, in a company full of JOMOs, sales might suffer and there would be little innovation. But while FOMOs are racing from meeting to networking event, you need a few JOMOs to be doing actual work. Bartleby naturally never plays solitaire during conference calls. And finally, a review in our Books and Arts section went back to a time before management speak. A new history by Tom Claven hunts for the truth behind the legend of Wild Bill Hickok. Of course, much of what we once thought we knew about the Wild West turned out to be a mirage. Matters big and small were twisted and embellished. The myth of the frontier as a place of freedom and opportunity has, these days, been supplanted by a less romantic understanding that, for many, Notably Native Americans, it was rather less idyllic. Wild Bill was an icon of that imagined West. The swaggering young gunslinger became a household name in 1867 when he was profiled in Harper's Magazine. I'm sort of public property, he said. The aura of the sharpshooter who could supposedly split a bullet on the edge of a dime at 20 paces was augmented by his style. His city garb included a Prince Albert court, checked trousers, a wide-brimmed black hat, and sometimes a cloak lined with scarlet silk. But in his telling of it, Wild Bill is overshadowed by his much more interesting wife, Agnes Thatcher Lake. A widow of 45, Hickok was 11 years younger. She was the first woman in America to own a circus. 
The circus and Agnes move on, but her affair with Hickok proceeds by post. They reunite, marry, and set off on a two-week honeymoon. Fatefully, Hickok heads for the Black Hills to strike it rich at the gaming tables or gold fields. Agnes Darling, if such should be, we never meet again, he writes in 1876. While firing my last shot, I will gently breathe the name of my wife. Oh, very romantic. And that's the end of this week's tasting menu. But if it was just enough to wet your whistle, do subscribe to us at The Economist. For our podcast listeners, the first six issues are just $6 or £6. Just go to economist.com forward slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. 